Okay, well, thank you so much for having me here at the BBA's uh, workshop programs that they've you know, often had throughout the process. This year is a little unique. I believe that uh, the bar exam has basically changed some, and I'm just gonna put these slides up now so that I can <clears throat> start to work around them. But, but what I want you to know about the bar exam is, is that the bar exam really hasn't changed. It seems like it's changed, but it's just been adapted for a new format. And what you have to understand is, is that unless you came to law school, just you know, absolutely dying to take the bar exam, the full 200 question exam and all of the essays and everything else that went along with it, unless that was you dying to take that exam, you know, if you're like the rest of us, you probably didn't even know about the bar exam when you got there. And then someone told you, hey, you gotta take the bar exam to become a lawyer. Well, that's what happened to me, but I got real interested fast in the bar exam when I started to see that people were doing well and not passing it. But anyone can pass it. And you've got to have that belief that you can actually pass this exam too, even though it's not even the format that you were expecting when you got here to your last year or to the end of your law school career. But that doesn't matter, okay? What this workshop is about is about how do you get from here now with seven weeks or whatever time you've got left to, to take the test and be successful. So I've come up with strategies towards the end of the process that will help you get on track with studying and test taking. So I'm calling this the five keys to the MBE. Five keys to the MBE, all right? Five keys to the MBE. And there's the first one there, it says to slow down. So a lot of times what has happened to all of us studying for and practicing and trying to take the bar exam is that we're always in a constant race, believing that you know we've got to do more each day than we can possibly do. And so we jump into testing and practicing without really reviewing. But I still think that the old fashioned way of learning, the one that you probably uh, utilized in law school or in undergraduate school, is gonna help you here. So think about spending and scheduling some time to review uh, a small outline, some flashcards that you may have made. If you've purchased some you know, commercial flashcards or gotten some from your bar review company, maybe say, okay, look, I wanna brush up on hearsay. So let me run through the hearsay rules before I start testing. And then, you know, see if you don't actually improve some of your testing as you start to review before you, you test. But the most important, the most important step in the process is to actually review after the test. So if you're not spending adequate time reviewing the problems that you've just practiced, then you're losing that opportunity to take advantage of the rule being tested and the opportunity to learn it better. So I really believe that most of you, okay, will benefit from, from working on basically scheduling your time so that you can set up yourself for success. So what I've tried to get, what I've tried to do over the years, and I've been teaching as a bar review instructor for 15 years. I've taught all over the United States, about 50 different law schools. I've taught multi-state bar exam pro uh, programs, MBE programs. And one of the common themes is, is that people are not scheduling themselves to test around the test schedule. So I'm gonna to move to this next slide for a second because we don't know a lot about the exam. There's not been much sent out by the Massachusetts Board of Bar Examiners, but the DC Bar Examining Committee, Committee sent this schedule out to its students a long time ago. So if we borrow this schedule from the DC Bar Examining Committee, and we say to ourselves, we can expect to take an MPT and three essays on day one and a hundred multiple choice questions on day two, then we should set ourselves up to practice at those times. So perhaps you, you think about rescheduling yourself so that your primary test time is in the afternoon from 12 to four, 12 to 
And indeed, that might be difficult because most of us get tired as the day goes on. I'm probably best around nine, even 10 o'clock, and then 12, and then one. And then by the time you get to seven or eight o'clock at night, you should be tired, especially if you've been studying all day. So really important to go back and think about, okay, how do I schedule my time? How do I schedule my practice time and my test time when the, when the exam is going to be administered? Well, okay, all right. Uh, I say this, don't try to overthink it. In, in other words, I'll even throw this on the board for a second. <clears throat> Maybe out of a week, a week is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. You can imagine that, right? And Saturday, perhaps, but maybe you're getting some rest on Sunday. Again, don't overthink it. Say to yourself, you know, I'm going to plan my schedule for a Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. And I'll try to test in the afternoons on those two days. And I'll, I'll schedule myself other practice work and other review work and essay practice, MPT practice, and other sort of non-testing practice on other days of the week. You've got five or six days a week you can schedule yourself on, but at least I would say one day a week, two days a week towards the very end, you've got to practice at those times. You've got to set yourself up for success and practice at those times because your brain has got to get used to being able to perform exactly at 12 o'clock, exactly at two o'clock. And it, it's really all about brain science because your brain can be trained to be ready to test at noon, at two, but you've got to exercise it. You've got to give it that opportunity. So unless you're testing, I recommend taking also frequent breaks 10 minutes every hour and at least one full hour away from the bar exam. Get outside, rest, have lunch, watch movies, do anything that gets your, gets your mind distracted off the exam because the, the brain is like a computer. Behind the scenes, it's processing information that you've been absorbing. But if you don't give it any rest, if you don't give it downtime, if you're not doing things that are uh, not reading, not practicing tests, not writing, then it won't have the opportunity to actually process the information and put it in the, in, 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 put it in, in, in your brain in such a way that you'll be able to recall it quickly when the time comes. This is all about instant recall. Do you recognize the rule being tested? So again, think about these things because a lot of times people just try to sit from morning till night at a desk or in front of a computer. And that's not gonna make, that's not gonna make your life any easier when it comes time to take the test because you're gonna be tired. So get, get a lot of rest. Think about when you might schedule these testing times to coincide with the 12 to 3.30 times between now and the end of, um, end of September or you know, whenever you're gonna take the test. But, you know, the last thing I'll say here before we get into some more details about the test is, don't make, the, don't make this bar exam larger than life. I mean, I used to hear this all the time. I'm going to die if I don't pass the bar exam. No way, you know? No one's gonna die because they don't pass the bar exam. Don't give this exam more than your life, all right? You have to start thinking about, all right, I can do this. I can believe in myself and I can start testing with a purpose. And to do that, you've got to get away from these details. You've got to know the most important and commonly tested rules that are out there, that are always gonna be on the test. In other words, if you don't know the most commonly tested rules, you'll get lost. You'll get lost and caught up in details and stress out about something that's probably not gonna be on the test. It could be on the test, but you can't know everything. I walk into any bar exam that I've taken knowing, okay, knowing that basically I'm not gonna know everything. But about half of the questions in Civ Pro are gonna be on these, and I got these all bolded in red. Half of the Civ Pro questions are gonna be about subject matter jurisdiction, personal jurisdiction, 
I'm going to know that venue statute backward and forwards. I'm going to be able to write it out from memory. Um, you know, service the process. These are going to be on the exam. Now, they could also they can also maybe test something like choice of law, appeals, um, appellate review of a of a trial court's decision. But if I don't if I don't know the Erie Doctrine, for instance. If I don't know it backwards and forwards like I know the venue statute, I'm not going to let that stress me out. I might know a little bit about Erie, and it's eerie, right? It's creepy. Erie is creepy. But I'm going to know the federal court, all right, is going to apply the law of the state and the jurisdiction where it sits. And I'm going to know that they usually apply federal civil procedure rules. So I might know a little bit more than that because I'm going to study it, but I'm not going to know everything that I might have known when I was in law school when the professor forced us to learn it. So get away, from the, get away from the details and make sure that you know exactly these rules that are gonna be tested. If it's 100 questions, if it's 100 questions like they say it is, and that's what they've said, it's gonna be 14 or 15 questions per subject, 14 or 15 questions per subject. That means, you know, out of 14 or 15 questions in CivPro, seven or eight of them are going to be about these four subjects. So know them because those are the ones you need to get right so that you can get a few of these other ones right and pass the bar exam. So that's Civ Pro. And again, I think, you know, uh, the BBA is going to have these slides and send them out to anyone that requests them. It's important because this also shows you that half the questions for criminal law are gonna be about homicide crimes and solicitation, attempt, and conspiracy. Yeah, I might not remember larceny or I might not remember false pretenses as well as I should have, but I'm gonna make sure I get these questions right. And the theft crimes or the property crimes, they're not hard. Arson, burglary, larceny, embezzlement. These are not hard crimes. So you can make up a lot of points in Crim Pro and Crim Law. Uh, the Fourth and Fifth Amendment are, amendments are heavily tested. So again, go back and try to think, okay, what do I need to know from these areas so I don't stress out that I don't know enough to pass? And that's just a good example where out of the 14 or 15 questions here, you know, two-thirds of them are going to come from three areas, four areas, the Fourth and Fifth Amendment, homicide crimes, inchoate crimes. That's nine or ten questions, nine or ten questions from basically four areas. So the next one, the next area is um, evidence. Again, two-thirds of the questions, 60-65% 60, 60, of the questions are going to come from seven rules. Hearsay, the hearsay exceptions and exclusions, impeachment and character evidence. So you really have to know those seven rules to get the nine or, you know, eight or nine, 10 questions correct on the bar exam. And that's where I'm gonna spend a lot of my time. In fact, we're gonna do one of these questions together here as part of the presentation. I've selected a few questions to work through with you and we'll see if we can put some of these techniques to work. So again, properties next. I'm just going through the, the different subjects that are gonna be tested. And again, half the questions are up here. Half the questions are gonna come from that area. Half the questions are real estate contracts, deeds, conveyancing, mortgages, foreclosure. These are big topic areas and if I, know something about landlord-tenant law and easements, concurrent estates, joint tenancies, tenancies by the entirety, and also tenants in common. If I can know something about those to get through, I believe I have a, a good shot. In fact, creation and termination of joint tenancies was just tested on the February 2020 uniform bar exam. It was one of the essays. So don't overlook these red areas, that's two-thirds of the questions, almost three-quarters of the questions will come from them. Maybe there's one question on the rule against perpetuities, states and land and future interest, but again, you don't have a lot of time to waste. So 
Think about what you, what's, what you're going to spend your time doing. So the next subject to talk about is torts, because in torts, you really have to know negligence and strict products liability questions. You have to know how to answer those questions, how to answer the negligence questions, how to answer the strict liability questions involving a defective product. That's the big ticket. Two thirds of the questions will come from those two areas. And so that's again, eight or nine questions out of 14, nine, 10 questions out of 14 or 15. So yes, they could test defamation or they could have a nuisance question, but really think about what you're gonna spend time learning so that you know that you can get the majority of questions right when you get to the exam. And additionally, contracts has three or four sort of big ticket items, about half or more, 60% of the questions, uh, eight, nine questions are gonna come from contract formation, defenses to formation and breach and remedies. It's very important that you go back and study those areas. If you get a question about a third party beneficiary and you've forgotten the rule, well, that's one question out of 14 or 15, but if you didn't know the remedies rules, if you didn't know what happens when a contract is breached, you're gonna miss two or three, four questions, depending on how many they test. But again, three or four main areas, I would make sure that you hit them all. And finally, con law here, individual rights and First Amendment. Half of the questions will come from those two topics. So they're not difficult rules. And if you don't remember something about the, the 11th Amendment, sovereign immunity, which was you know also recently tested on the essays, then again, <clears throat> You know, you've got to think about how much can you actually put in your mind. But what I really recommend is, is that if it's on this list somewhere, make sure you know something about it. Okay. It's not a difficult topic because really all it says is, is that states cannot be sued, right? States cannot be sued by private persons unless they're, unless they waive their sovereign immunity. That's typically what that means. All right, suit states are immune from suit. States are immune from suit. So go back and study a little bit. Make sure you know how to answer those kinds of questions if there's one that comes up. But I'm gonna spend a lot of my time on these big ticket items because that's where I'm gonna make the points. But you're also probably gonna to have to spend time looking at how to read these questions. And what happens is is everyone believes, okay, this is now online. There's not a lot known about the software they're gonna give you to use. There is indication that um, you'll have some type of highlighting program or that you'll actually be able to, you know, take notes and make margin notes as you go through. But it's gonna be difficult to say until they actually give you a program. So let's not speculate, just learn to read and learn how to read questions without having to do too much work. And if you have a Word program or a PDF program that has a highlighting function, yeah, try to use that. Um, you know, I can use this a little bit here. I can basically highlight that for you. But what I'm asking you to do is to think about improving your reading skills, okay? Improving your reading skills. So you work on your accuracy first. Now that goes back to almost the first slide. So there's five keys, right? Slow down is one. And if you go all the way back, you can take a look here. If you slow down one, schedule your time so that you're working on this accuracy. Make sure that you understand the most important rules. Get out of the details, that's three. Number four is reading. I said there was five, the fifth will come. One, slow down. Two, schedule your time. Three, make sure you know the big ticket items, the ones that are always tested, stay away from the details. And four is to improve your reading. So five keys to success, five keys to success that'll help you test, okay? Five keys to success that will help you test. And how do you do that? Well, you work on accuracy and that means slowing down, getting away from time conditions so that you can improve your percentages. 
And if you work on accuracy first, then you can work on speed. You've got plenty of time to do that. And in, in doing that, okay, that means you have to say to yourself, I'm not so much concerned with how fast I can do this question, but how well I can learn to read it. And then the next time you do a question, how well you can learn to read it quickly. That's gonna be important because every question comes with a lot of facts, all right? And some of those facts mean something, some of them are a trap. But those same facts lead you, okay? They lead you to the issue and the rule being tested and that will allow you to do what? Solve the case. You're like a detective. When you read these hypos, and hopefully you love these hypos. If you read these hypos, you know, as much as I do, and, and I'm thinking to myself, well, why are they telling me this? I wanna solve this problem. You're like a detective. So you've got to uncover the truth behind the question and ask yourself, what's the real issue here? And how am I going to solve it? What's my client going to do? Because ultimately, or what's my client want me to do? Ultimately, this is like a client walks into your office and tells you a, you know, wild problem. And all they want you to do on the bar exam is to basically what? Tell them what the problem is, how it should be resolved, and why. It's three things. What the problem is, how it should be resolved, and why. That's ultimately all you're doing when you take these tests. So make them fun, have a lot of fun with it. Uh, laugh at the hypos. Let's see, we've got a hypo here in the next, the next slide. So let's see if we can laugh at this one a little bit. And we're gonna work through this slowly. And I'm gonna give you a few minutes to read the question or a couple minutes here before I jump in. And this, this time, in, in this instance, we're not gonna have any discussion about the rules until after the question, until after the question. But learn to love these questions as much as I do, and you'll have fun on the bar exam. Okay, well, hopefully if you're like me and you really enjoyed, um, you really enjoyed testing uh, on paper and you could underline things when you get to a question like this in an online format, you really, you really have to start learning how to read the questions better online. So my advice is each subject is a little bit different. Evidence, for instance, in evidence, you have to focus on what testimony or what has been objected to? What are they? What is someone trying to to to, to uh, get admitted? And what is someone trying to keep out? So that's my number one goal with evidence: is to when I see an evidence question online or on paper, but if it's online, I want to try to focus on okay, uh, basically the the uh, the call of the question and what's trying to be admitted. The proposed cross-examination question. So on cross, I can see right above me, I can see the words on cross-examination. The prosecutor asked the witness why he did not mention something to a police investigator. I might look at that just briefly as I see the two words cross-examination, cross-examination match up in my eyesight. Um, but then I'm going to go to the to the top of the facts and I'm gonna to try to make sense of what happened. Uh, the first question is, you know, someone is arrested and charged with killing a spouse. Okay, um, not so nice, but anyway, at the trial, the first degree, remember none of these are fake, none of these are real cases, they're all fake, so we don't really care. At the trial, 
Okay, the rancher's attorney calls a witness who testifies that the rancher was with him at the time of the spouse, at the time the spouse was killed. So I know that's important because this is like an alibi witness. And I know that's important because if an alibi witness makes a statement on the stand, perhaps he had made a conflicting statement before he took the stand. And that's what I think happened here. So on cross-exam, the prosecutor asks the witness why he didn't mention the state, that statement to the police investigator when he was asked about being with the rancher when the spouse was killed. So sounds like he didn't respond to a question earlier and now he said something that indicates that basically <clears throat> he was with the rancher. And the question is only asking, can the, can the prosecutor, excuse me, can the prosecutor, can the prosecutor ask this question? Is this question proper? Well, I mean, if, 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 if a witness says one thing on the stand and says something different prior to the actual case, prior to the actual trial, that might be deemed a prior inconsistent statement. So let's see what we have here. Is the prosecutor's proposed cross-examination question proper? Okay, let's take a look at some of these answers here. No, because the witness's truthfulness cannot be attacked by specific instances of conduct. Well, that sounds like a, uh, a truthfulness or an impeachment question by truthfulness. And, you know, you can ask about specific instances of conduct on cross-examination. But I don't think that's what the issue is that's being tested here because <clears throat> the witness's truthfulness can be attacked by specific instances of conduct on cross. But remember, on cross, Anytime you use a specific act on cross, the, the person asking the question is always gonna be stuck with the answer. So I'm not sure that's what they're asking here because they're only talking about whether this is a proper form of question. And A doesn't respond to that, to that question. So B, the witness's failure to mention the alibi is hearsay. Well, if it is hearsay, maybe that's what they're testing in this question, but I don't know yet. So in a lot of ways, I need to read all of the answer choices before I'm gonna make a decision. And sometimes that happens. You must use, you must use process of elimination. And my technique is very simple. I don't cross something off unless I'm abs absolutely sure it's, it's the wrong answer. But I'm gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna give it a chance until I've read it. Read all four. So I go to the next one. Yes, because the witness's failure to mention the alibi can be used for impeachment purposes. I know that's true. But what about used as substantive substantive evidence of the alibi? Hmm, I don't think that's true. Okay, I don't think it can be used as substantive evidence of the alibi. I mean, uh, first of all, he never told the police that he was with the rancher uh, prior to the trial. He just came up with that on the stand. And then so I think C is wrong, but, but D says, yes, because the witness is fair to mention the alibi can be used for impeachment purposes. Well, okay, I know that you know, you can always impeach a witness. Any witness can be impeached with a prior inconsistent statement, for bias, for perception. I know that witnesses' veracities can always be impeached with a prior inconsistent statement because maybe they're not telling the truth if they made one statement before trial and a different statement at trial. So you can always impeach a witness with a prior inconsistent statement for for bias, for perception, whether they can actually see or hear something, and you can always impeach them for veracity purposes, for truthfulness. I know that these things can be done. Uh, you can even impeach a witness with a prior conviction of a crime under certain rules under 609. But the purpose of this question is to say, sometimes you do have to work through a question by process elimination. I like this answer D, but we've got to eliminate A and B. Is the prosecutor's proposed cross-examination question proper? 
Well, I think to the extent that it's used for impeachment purposes, it's a proper question because he's trying to show that the opportunity to present this evidence about the alibi was present once before when the witness met with the police investigator and he didn't mention it, but now on the stand, he says he was with, with the rancher on the day that the rancher's spouse was killed. So I know D's a good answer. And um, even if it was hearsay, even if it was hearsay, you can always use any hearsay statement for impeachment purposes. As long as you're not using it for its truth as substantive evidence, you can always use, you can always use the statement for impeachment purposes. All right, so I worked through those answer choices with you together a little bit here because I didn't teach any law before the question. But here what we're gonna do is actually look at the rule because if you have a prior inconsistent statement, the issue a lot of times that's being tested is whether that prior inconsistent statement can be used for substantive evidence and to impeach the witness or only for impeachment. Remember, substantive evidence is for its truth. So whether you can use a statement for substantive evidence or, or to prove the truth of the statement and for impeachment purposes is a question that the bar examiners always ask. So you're gonna see a question involving a prior inconsistent statement. There's always one on there. And I really believe that if you learn to uh, work through questions in this format, and I'm just comparing the both, then you'll always get the answer right. You'll always get to the right answer. So here we have a witness testifying at the current trial. All right, witness testifies at the current trial. Yes, the witness testified at the trial. <clears throat> the witness made a prior inconsistent statement. The witness made a prior inconsistent statement something different than was said at the trial. I mean, even his silence could be a statement, okay, that he either didn't know or he did know. So in both cases, the questions are answered in the affirmative. Yes, the witness testified and he said something different or didn't say anything at all when he should have spoken up prior to the trial. Anyway. The question only asks whether the question was proper, and that's why it was proper for impeachment purposes. The prior statement was made at another proceeding, deposition, etc. Well, this statement was just made to a police investigator. Um, the statement was not, not sworn, okay, at another proceeding or deposition. So if the prior statement was sworn at another proceeding, then the statement can be used both for substantive evidence and to impeach. And if the statement was not sworn at another proceeding, if the statement was not sworn at another proceeding, the statement can only be used to impeach, only be used to impeach. So this is a nice comparative chart because <clears throat> if you work through the details of any question, once you see that the prior inconsistent statement was made, was made at a prior proceeding under oath subject to the penalty of perjury or sworn, then it's admissible as a prior inconsistent statement as substantive evidence and to impeach, you can admit it for its truth. Otherwise, it just comes in to impeach. Now, what about, think about, think about this. What happens when the witness is also a party? to the case. Statement made, statements made by opposing parties. This is an important rule because it's also gonna be on the exam. Statements made by opposing parties, okay? Statements made by opposing parties are what? Always admissible, always admissible as substantive evidence and to impeach the party so long as it's being offered against the party at trial. So statements made by party opponents are always admissible, are always admissible as substantive evidence and even perhaps to impeach the party witness so long as it's offered against the party at trial. 
So that's an interesting question, and it takes a while to, to work through the evidence question. We have about 10 more minutes before we go into a Q&A session. So I have two more questions, both a lot simpler than that last one. And the first one here involves recording statutes. Because recording statutes are always tested on the bar exam in some way. They're either in a, just a straight conveyance problem or they're in a problem involving a mortgage. So you have to know how to do these problems. And that's where good reading comes into play. So let's show you a technique on how to do, solve these problems quickly. And here's the rule. You know who wins. In a notice statute, the last BFP wins and the statute does not contain the word first, but in a race notice statute problem, the statute contains the word first and the word notice. All right, and the first one to record, the first BFP to record, not just anyone, the first BFP to record. All right, so let's look at this question here real quick because it's important. And the call of the question is down here in the bottom. It says, in favor of which party should the court rule? Well, it sounds like someone's suing someone. But anytime I see a question and I believe it's property or I look up above the call of the question, this one was a little tight in the spacing, but if I look above the call of the question and I see a recording act, I'm gonna read that recording act first. I'm not gonna go to the top of the facts and read down. I'm gonna say, okay, what kind of statute is this? Can I quickly ascertain if this is notice, race, notice, race? Sometimes it's easier than other times, but here, here's the word first, and here's the word notice. It contains both the word first to record, who shall record first, and the word notice, so I know that this statute here is gonna protect the BFP, um, who has recorded first, and then I'm just gonna read the facts to determine who should win, who should win. So again, keep track of the facts, and then we'll let you solve the problem on, its, on your own here. We'll look at, look at the answer choices before we finish up with our last question. And I've picked the three hardest areas, just so you know, evidence, property, and criminal law and procedure are probably the three hardest areas. And um, you know, all the other ones are difficult too, but they're, they're, they're just not as challenging usually for students. All right, here we go. The man conveys by warranty deed, you know, I, I, I want to pay attention to that, to his cousin for value. Okay, so he's a bona fide purchaser, but the, but the cousin did not record. Six months later, the man also still in possession conveyed the land to his <coughs> friend as a gift. So he gives it away. After he collected somebody from his cousin, he gives the land away to his friend. Again, none, none of these facts are true, but... <coughs> The friend knows nothing of the deed, but it doesn't matter. He's not a BFP. And so it doesn't matter whether he had knowledge or, or not. The friend also did not record his deed. The friend then vacated the land and the friend took possession. All right, so friend jumps onto the land and now possesses it. But the cousin learns about the friend's deed and immediately files suit to quiet title. So here, <clears throat> what you're trying to solve is between the friend and the cousin who should win in a notice statute, juris I mean, a race notice statute jurisdiction, race notice statute jurisdiction. So take a look at the question here. I mean, um, take a look at the question in favor of which party should the court rule, cousin sues friend, tells the court, hey, I own the land, and it's a race notice statute. So someone had to win the race to record. Who should they, who should they rule for? Well, who should they rule for? <clears throat> well, it says here, answer choice for the cousin because she received a warranty deed and paid value first in time, but, and the friend only received a quick claim deed. That's usually a trap. I mean, it's not relevant here what type of deed they received. That's only relevant as to warranties of title, both present and future. So I know that answer choice A 
doesn't mean anything. It doesn't make any sense because I know I can eliminate that answer choice right away. I'm looking for the cousin because he was the first BFP to record. And here, answer choice B gives me the right answer because the friend failed to record first. And, you know, it's not the best answer, okay? So, but I know I have to pick it because for the friend, because he was first in time in possession of the land. I know that's irrelevant here to, because the cousin recorded before the friend. And then for the friend, because a subsequent good faith donee has priority over a prior party and interest who fails to record. I know that's not true. That's not a true statement of law. So had I been smart to save time, I could have just picked B and moved on. But often we want to check our answers <coughs> against what else we see in the problem. And if you do that, you'll spend a little bit more time looking at the problem. But it's often, you know, it's often, um, it's often, you know, helpful to at least put our mind at ease that we've got the best answer choice. Keep in mind this caveat. Once you have an instinct for an answer, you should pick it without talking yourself out of it, even if sometimes you're wrong, because your first instincts are generally your best instincts. Okay. And sometimes even process of elimination doesn't work. So you've just got to pick something, pick the statement that sounds like it's the most legally correct, or pick C for correct, or B for best. Pick a letter, but just move with it. The next and last question here is pretty short. Okay, the man and woman agreed uh, that the woman would rob a bank and the man would steal a car. All right, so the call of the question here, can the man be convicted of conspiracy to commit bank robbery and bank robbery? All right, so we see in the facts the man and woman agreed So read these facts for just a brief minute. Again, we're not going to spend too much time here. So he steals the car, he leaves the car for the woman, puts the key on the mat with a note, says, hey, I'm out. See ya, too bad, so sad I'm gone. You go, you know, he doesn't know what's gonna happen, but later that day she does rob the bank and escapes uh, and disappears. So they obviously find the man somehow and they want to convict him. They want to, you know, convict him of conspiracy and uh, <clears throat> basically to commit bank robbery and bank robbery. So he's being charged with two crimes. Can he be convicted of both under the law? Well, let's look at the call of the question again. Can he be convicted of conspiracy to commit bank robbery and bank robbery? And, you know, one of these four is the correct answer. So, you know, what were your keys in the reading of the facts? Well, look, I mean, he left the key, okay? He left the key and basically said he, want, he wanted nothing more to do with the scheme. Is that a fact that you will help you? Is it relevant or is it a distracting fact? Is it a trap? It's probably a trap because why? I know if there was an agreement to commit a crime, all right, then there might be a conspiracy and the fact that he left a note, okay, is that enough to, let, to get him out of, the, out of the conspiracy? Hmm, maybe, maybe. So let's have a look here. Let's have a look. Can the man be convicted of conspiracy to commit bank robbery and bank robbery? Okay, so let's take a, take a look at the law real quick before you pick your answer. Conspiracy 
<clears throat> Conspiracy means what? There's an agreement between two or more persons to commit a crime and Basically, the conspiracy under the common law was complete upon the agreement. There was no overt act required. But today, most jurisdictions have added this agreement plus overt act rule. So they add the overt act into the rule. And there's got to be an act basically in preparation or in furtherance of the conspiracy and an agreement between two or more persons to commit a crime. So an agreement and an overt act in preparation and in furtherance of the conspiracy is enough. So let's see what happens here. If we go back to the facts, looks like there's an agreement. There's a preparatory act, the stealing of the vehicle. And he leaves the car for her to use once she's robbed the bank. Okay, so looks like it looks like there's everything, but what about this answer choice here B, the man withdrew from the conspiracy? He left a note. He left a note so that she could what? See it before she robbed the bank or after she robbed the bank? Ah, so I know that I've got to know something more about this rule and indeed withdrawal from crimes committed in furtherance of the conspiracy is another rule they love to test. And I saw this on the last bar exam I took. It's always on there somewhere. But the co-conspirator must, must notify the members of the conspiracy in time for them to abandon their plans. And this will only, this withdrawal rule will only, only get the co-conspirator out of the crime committed in furtherance of the conspiracy, not the conspiracy self, not the conspiracy itself, because why? Conspiracy does not merge. Conspiracy does not merge into the completed crime. So you can always be charged with both crimes. You'll always be convicted of the conspiracy under most circumstances, and but maybe not, maybe not the completed crime if you withdrew in time, if you withdrew in time. But in our fact pattern, in our fact pattern, the person here, the man left the note under the mat, which was gonna be seen when? After the robbery took place. So given that that's the rule, you should have selected answer choice D. There was an agreement to rob the bank and an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. Answer choice B is the trap, okay? The fact that she robbed it and disappeared is also is also a trap answer. And you know his assistance in the robbery uh, and the getaway, you know, is not really basically as good of an answer as D, which gives you the rule for conspiracy. And so he can be convicted of both crimes. And these were release questions for the most part that we did at the national conference of bar examiners has put out there in some way or another. Almost all of the bar company's questions were at one time a release question, so the fact patterns all tend to run the same. But in closing, you know, the fifth thing that I've got to tell you is to have fun. I always tell all of my students to have fun, crush the bar exam. Look, this is no easy process. I mean, we've all been stuck, cooped up inside somewhere now for, you know, a good while, okay? Don't let, you, don't let your mind go crazy. And that's why one of those slides earlier said, get outside. You've got to get out and start at least getting some sunshine and walking and uh, feeling like you have some, you know, something else to do besides sit in front of a computer and study. Because sitting in front of a computer and studying all of the time will actually have a counter effect on your ability to pass the test. I've seen it happen over and over again. Again, I've been teaching the bar exam for 15 years. I started a mentoring program just like this one at the BBA with two other attorneys in Kansas City where I was first um, practicing as a trial lawyer. And two years later, just between the three of us, we had nine new lawyers who had not passed the bar exam. 
And from there, I started developing programs to help everyone pass the bar exam, no matter what. But the key to success is the belief that you have to have in yourself. Yeah, I've given you five keys. If you go back to them and you think, slow down, schedule your time better. Don't get lost in the weeds, so to speak. You know, make sure you know the law that's always tested well enough <clears throat> so that you can practice and improve your reading. And then have a great attitude. Have fun. These are five things that you can take away from today and say, have fun, slow down, schedule your time, focus on the big, big ticket items, the items that the, the rules that are always tested. But really, you know, you've got to go back and think about where you're headed. You're going to get sworn in to become a lawyer, licensed to practice law. Who cares if it's on Zoom? I don't care if you, you know, I mean, you know, I think I only went to my swearing in because someone told me I had to go, but I didn't think I actually did, but I went anyway. But anyway, you're going to get sworn in to practice law. It may not, it may not have all the flair that you had hoped for, but you've got to envision that moment that you're going to take that oath and become an attorney licensed to help others because that's what we do. And um, again, the BBA has my contact information and these slides will be sent out to them so they can, um, I'll put my email address in the slides so if you want those. But I wanna open this up to questions. Remember, you've got to believe in yourself and you've got to have fun. Have a great attitude to do what? Crush the bar exam as I always tell my students. But. Um, they're probably laughing at me now, or maybe not laughing enough because I'm not jumping off tables like I usually am. But never mind. Uh, <clears throat> I hope that you've had as much fun as I have and have learned something that will help you improve. So do we have questions here, Doug, that have been sent in with the chat? Um, we have one question that is, is the exam in the afternoon on both days? Do we know the timing for that, Professor? Well, we don't really, we, we, I mean, uh, we don't know the timing because there's nothing been published about it. Um, but I would say this, the, 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 the um, uh, and I think I just somehow got out of this um, screen, but um, um, what I would say is this, is that, is that the District of Columbia told their applicants that those times, and I'll go back to that slide here, that those times would, would govern the exam, that the exam would be tested as follows. Now, it, the speculation is, is that the national conference is releasing those materials. The national conference is in charge in many respects of all remote exams who are gonna get all the same materials. So everyone is gonna have to on the East Coast take the, take the exam at the same time. Everyone on the West Coast, say, you know, a West Coast state that's getting these materials uh, for their state, and I can't think of one that is, maybe Arizona, it's been hard to uh, uh, keep track of uh, anyone that might be on actual Pacific time, but say there's a central time zone that's using this exam, and if there's a central time zone using this exam, then they're going to have to take it at 10 o'clock, or excuse me, 11 o'clock, and a mountain time zone would take it at 10 o'clock. So I think the schedule is set up so that everyone in the United States taking the exam on October 5th and 6th would take it exactly at the same time. Uh, just another method of preventing you from perhaps calling your friend in New Mexico and saying, hey, what's on your test? Do we have the same test? I'm not sure. And these people really have made a mess of it in the sense that in many respects, um, uh, they, they, they haven't given us enough information about when the exam is going to be um, set up. But I believe this is a pretty good schedule to follow. I'm asking all of my students to follow this schedule. Um, but um, um, at, least, at least when they do some practice testing, at least when they do some practice testing. And you know, you can modify that by half an hour, you know, start at 11.30, start at 12.30. Um, start at one but just to, just so the fact is is that you're feeling the pain of the afternoon as opposed to the morning but um um you know as you as you get a little bit tired as well it's 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 helpful as long as you keep your adrenaline up um my experience is that when i test just myself 
I test worse in the morning because I, I tend to probably have more um, more jitters in the morning. And um, so what I've also recommended to students is if you think that you're going to start off testing poorly before actually, because sometimes I'll get the first out of 10 questions, I might only get four right because I, I think about the nerves of it. And uh, I'm a pretty good test taker and have been all along for since I was in, you know, I guess grade school, but, but, but what I did was, is I started practicing five questions or seven questions before the test starts. And then I just take the questions and throw them away. I don't have the answers to them. Um, I don't, I don't want to know the answers. I just want to practice something so that I get those, those pre-test, you know, um, nerves out of the way. And that really helps. That really helps. That's one thing that will really help. If anyone else has questions, you can put them in the chat, uh, which you can see at the bottom of your screen, or if you'd like, you can unmute yourself and just say it out loud. Yeah, please, please feel free to, you know, ask anything you want to ask about anything I didn't cover. <laughs> uh, or, you know, didn't mention that might be helpful to you. Especially about, especially because many of you, um, are taking the exam out there and been studying alone for so long. It's hard to get access to people. Any more questions? Well, if there's no more questions, then maybe uh, I haven't left you thinking enough about it. And I would say that this is the case, um, that essentially, um, anything that you, anything that you're doing between now and when you take the test, can be extremely helpful because this is a matter of inches. Any small gain you get is going to help you in the end. Remember, it's not about getting a perfect score. It's not about, you know, getting 80% of the questions right. To pass the bar exam has always been around a 60 to 67% mark. It's essentially a D. You know, I mean, if you can scrape by in law school with a C to get a JD, you need a D, okay, to become a lawyer. Meaning that what? If you get a D, you know, try to get a D plus, I guess, but if you, a D and you become a lawyer, all right? Someone has raised their hand, it looks like. <clears throat> so, um, uh, not sure what's what I need to do here. Go ahead. I, I have a question. Yes. Um, hi, Professor Coulthard. My question is, um, are you going to post this PowerPoint online? Is, is it going to be accessible to the people who attended? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide this, this PowerPoint presentation to anyone that wants it. And uh, the BBA can send it out to any, anyone. And if I and if, and if, um, um, can't find my screen here anymore, but... Um, if anyone else wants it, <clears throat> uh, then you know. Then I would I would really say that you know they can they can um, you know they can email me directly too. <clears throat> that's that's out there. But the BBA will have these slides. They'll be able to send it out to anyone that requests them, and then I'll post these slides for the students here at New England Law too. Thank you. We'll, we'll also um, I'll send out an email with these slides attached to everybody who attended and registered for the program. Well, that sounds great. I mean, I really appreciate you doing that. Um, the thing about this process is, is that, you know, always, 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 always remember to, to, to be, to be, <clears throat> try not to ever think that you, that you can't do it. I mean, you always be positive because any negative thoughts really creep in and, and take away from the psychology of the exam. If you believe in yourself, I mean, just believe in yourself to know that, yeah, I'm gonna miss a question, but I don't care. I'm gonna get enough questions right on the, on the multi-state portion of the exam to pass. And the more knowledge I have by learning through the multi-state exam, the better off I'm gonna be when it comes to the essay exam. The essay exam will test the same rules. You know, we don't know what's gonna be tested by the time that exam comes in October. Uh, you know, 
I mean, I'm not sure what's going to happen next week, but I don't care. I know, I know that the, the National Conference has, you know, had one exam already. Students walked into the exam and live exams in July. And during that test in July, they tested family law. So, you know, will it come back around for our test? We don't know on the essays. Um, but but, but you, the, the goal for you is to be ready for all seven multi-state subjects for the multi-state exam. There, some of those are usually tested in the essays. If you have three essays, you could get one, two, or even three multi-state topics. Um, and then, uh, you know, you have wills and trusts being tested, business organizations, family law, which was just tested this, this summer, for instance. But... Um, Really, don't be afraid of this exam. Do not be afraid of this exam because it's very important for you to stay positive and believe in yourself. And if you have any doubts, again, uh, you know, when, when Doug sends out the information uh, the, from the presentation tonight, you can get a hold of me, okay? Thank you, Professor Colthard, um, and thank you to everybody who attended. Like I said, I will send out these slides, which will include Professor Colthard's contact information to everybody who attended and registered. If you don't receive them or if you have any questions for me, you can email me at dnewton at bostonbar.org. I'll say that again, dnewton at bostonbar.org. Thank you, everybody, very and much. I want, to, I want to also thank everyone as well. Thank you so much for your participation tonight. And I always tell everyone to crush the bar exam. Okay, you go out there and do it, okay? Come on. All right, thanks so much, Doug. Thank you. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks, Coach. Thank, thank you. you, Coach. Thank you, Regina. Thank, thank you. you, Coach. Bye.